0: If you open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5, we'll be in, uh, this is the fifth story of Daniel that we'll be in today. I want to read one verse uh, before uh, kind of we have some introductory thoughts. The chapter begins this way. This is how Daniel 5 begins. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the house the thousand. King Belshazzar, he throws this huge feast. Now, you're probably thinking, who's Belshazzar? Weren't we talking about Nebuchadnezzar? The date of this story, this story is set in 539 B.C. And King Nebuchadnezzar, on the time of this, this account, and Daniel 5 has been dead for 23 years. Uh, and Daniel's old, really old. So we know a fair amount about this, this time period. So Nebuchadnezzar died. Uh, uh, he reigned for quite a while, and when he died, he, um, his son became king. And his son's name was Amul Marduk. And he reigned for two years before actually his son-in-law took the kingdom from him, Neri uh, Glisser which, by the way, I have no idea if I'm saying these names right. So, uh, but Neri Glisser took the throne from his father-in-law, and he reigned for four years. When he died, his son, Labashi Marduk, took over, but his son was a minor. He wasn't even of age, and he was killed within nine months of taking the throne. Which brings us to uh, the next king whose name is Nabonidus. And Nabonidus was more of an outsider. So he was not really in the line, so to speak, of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He actually had an Assyrian background. And in fact, he, so he rules for 17 years. But Babylon is never really his home. Marduk is not really his god. And so for the last 14 of his 17 years on the throne... Nabonidus is not in Babylon, actually. Nabonidus is in Arabia. Um, And what he's actually done is he's left the throne, for all intents and purposes, he's left the throne of Babylon to his son, Belshazzar. So Belshazzar is a functional king of Babylon who's reigning, who's on the throne. We are now 23 years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and Daniel's old. Daniel's, he's like 80 years old. Um, we, we know even more about this period than this. It's amazing how much we know because we're entering the time of recorded, well-recorded history we know that Belshazzar ruled Babylon until 539 when the Persians took the city with what seems to be without a fight. So everything I'm going to tell you right now, I, we know from extra biblical sources. We have several accounts, at least four, that describe how uh, Babylon fell, and none of them really seem to talk about much of a fight. In fact, we have a few accounts uh, from Greek historians, one from uh, Herodotus, who says the way that the Persians infiltrated the city is they redirected the Euphrates River. They dug huge trenches that allowed them to drain. The river ran right through the city. So if you might remember last week, we talked about Babylon had huge walls. They were practically a wonder of the world. Well, the river went straight through the city, so the Persians drained the river and marched into the city on the riverbed and took the city without a fight. Another Greek uh, historian, Xenophon, uh, who was a student of Socrates, uh, talks about the king of Babylon, Belshazzar. He says he was, quote, a riotous, indulgent, cruel, and godless man. And in his history of Cyrus, Xenophon writes this. This is speaking of the night they invaded. It says, And Cyrus heard that it was the time of high festival in Babylon when the citizens drink and make merry the whole night long. As soon as darkness fell, he set his men to work. I mean, we know a lot about this time. And um, in fact, I can tell you with a fair degree of certainty that this story takes place on the 12th of October, 539 B.C., that's how much is known. Daniel is about 80. He's been living in Babylon for 67 years. Now, I just want us to think a little bit here. Up to this point, it's been, it's been Nebuchadnezzar, 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 really on the front end of the Babylonian kingdom. And now, all of a sudden, without telling you anything, The book of Daniel skips five kings and picks up on the last day of the Babylonian empire. That's noteworthy. Today's story is the last day of an epic of Babylonian rule. And we're gonna read how it ends. So let me start. I'll I'll read verse one again. I'll read the first four verses and it should kind of give us a good setting here. It says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front, of the house, in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Here it says, when he had tasted the wine is how I have it in the translation I read. Some of you might, it might actually say, uh, when Belshazzar became intoxicated. That's the point. Is after the wine was doing its job, Belshazzar gets this idea. And this idea is, go get the vessels that my father, and by the way, father there is not technically father, it's like my ancestor, my ancestor. The, those who've gone, but my, my predecessor. Go get the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar, my father, took out of the temple of Yahweh, and let's bring them to dinner, and let's drink from them. Okay? That's his idea. Let's worship all of these gods. Let's drink a toast to these gods with the vessels from the, Hebrew, uh, the temple of the Hebrew god. Now, I don't, know, I don't know if we can know for sure if this is intended to be a mocking gesture, like if Belshazzar is trying to belittle the God of the Hebrews, or if this is simply him trying to say, hey, I have another spiritual twist on this holy day. Let's, let's grab these vessels of this other God and incorporate them in. Either way, I, I, I will say the one thing we're told is uh, this idea didn't pop into his head until he had had too much to drink. Either way, though, it's, it's sacrilegious to the Lord. I mean, even the way the Hebrew writer gives it to us here, they drank wine and praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. I mean, he's, the writer is letting us know sort of how the vessels of the temple of God are being used in a ceremony, in a feast, in, a, in revelry with these inanimate gods. It's sort of, I think, the straw that breaks the camel's back. Look at verse 5. I'll read 5 through 12. It says, Immediately the finger of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you, or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, Light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So I think we've seen this sort of uh, theme before in the book of Daniel, right? A king having a vision or a dream or an experience in this case that uh, causes him great fear and then them bringing in the astrologers and the diviners and the enchanters and them being perplexed. We've seen this before. This is not the first time, but I want us to notice, however, I want us to notice what Belshazzar knows and what Belshazzar doesn't know. Okay, what he he seems to know and what he seems to not know. For example, Belshazzar seems to know that in the treasury are the vessels of the temple of the Hebrew God. He seems to know that, but he doesn't seem to know about Daniel. I mean, when it comes to like cups of gold, Belshazzar seems very well read. But when it comes to Daniel, Daniel has been collecting dust for 17 years. The the queen knows. Now, in this case, it might be like a queen mother. It may not be an actual queen, but it seems like the queen knows about Daniel. I mean, she obviously knows about Daniel. You might say if she's like a queen mother, maybe she's older. Maybe her memory is from a different time, which might be true, but at the same time, it's not like this is ancient history. It's it's 23 years I mean this king was alive when Nebuchadnezzar was alive it's not been 100 years and Daniel was not an obscure citizen he had been elevated by Nebuchadnezzar I just want us to take note of what Belshazzar seems to know and what he doesn't know. Because I, I want to say this statement about us, generally speaking, okay, that we know, you and me, people, all humans, we know and we learn and we remember selectively. Now, some of you may be in a stage in life where you're not that selective about what you can remember, but you still know this is generally true. We, what we learn and we know and we remember is selective, okay? We're choosing what we're interested in. What we what we choose to forget and what we choose to remember is largely has to do with what we think is important in this world. So you might give the king a pass here for not knowing about Daniel, but I have to say the queen knew about Daniel. And Belshazzar knew about the cups of gold. It's not like this is ancient history. Why does he not know about Daniel? It's gonna. I'll read this uh, next several verses here. It's going to be clear that he doesn't know him. Just listen to the way he talks. <clears throat> Verse 13, it says, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you. And that The light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. He says, I've heard that the spirit of God is in you. The spirits of the gods is in you is how it is in my Bible. But we've seen this. This was last week. We saw this, this expression. The spirits of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar said it, but he didn't say it the way Belshazzar says it. Belshazzar says, I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you. Nebuchadnezzar said, I know that the spirit of the gods is in you. I know that the spirit of the gods is in you. I think that's a difference. It's a difference. Nebuchadnezzar knows Daniel well enough to go, now I I know that the spirit of God is in you. I know he's in you. Belshazzar is so far away from Daniel, he's saying, hey, I've heard the queen told me that you are the kind of guy who knows stuff. And what I think is interesting about this passage is, in one case, in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, it's a picture of knowledge. Nebuchadnezzar says, Daniel, I know that the Spirit of God is in you. In the case of Belshazzar, it's a statement of of access. I've heard that the Spirit of God is in you. I've heard you're a guy who knows stuff. And I find this difference noteworthy, okay, that... Belshazzar seems to be content that the knowledge is within reach. Nebuchadnezzar knew Daniel. And I just want to point this out about uh, where we can content ourselves with the knowledge of God. Some people, we'd like to say everyone who's in the Lord knows We get to the place where it's not that we've heard that God can do something. We know God can do something. That you should be, the goal, a goal in our Christian life is to move from having heard of what God's able to do and, and his nature and his particulars and his spirit to move from it being a story that's outside of us to being a story that's inside of us. It's kind of like somebody who puts the Bible app on their phone and they walk around all the time with this Bible app on their phone but they never read the Bible And I don't need to know it. I always have it with me. I always have it with me. You have it with you, but it's within reach. You don't have it in you. There's a huge difference between I know. I know these things about you. I know these things. Let's just spiritualize it. I know these things are true about God. I've experienced God. I, I know these things versus I've heard. I've heard this is the case. It's not every day I find myself sticking up for Nebuchadnezzar. But I would say, Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar are not the same. Let's see what Daniel has to say. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of the house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and of gold and of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Now, I just, want to pre- I just want to point out that Daniel has like, got his preach on right here, and he has not yet said one word about the writing on the wall. I-, I want to point out we're like seven verses away from the end of the Babylonian empire, and we still don't know what's written on the wall. It's because, uh, I mean, Daniel tells the story, Right? your predecessor your father was a great the great king of your age who you uh, you align with everyone aligned themselves with Nebuchadnezzar whether they, whether they were related or not when Cyrus comes into the Babylon and takes it over this very night He's going to eventually try to link himself to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest human on the face of the known ancient world at the time. Everyone wanted to be connected to him. It's just like when everyone does their family trees right now, we always find out we're related to, what is it, Charlemagne, or who's that guy? Charles. It, it all goes back to famous people. No one's happy until they're connected to a famous person. To everyone, like Nebuchadnezzar, right, he's the great king of the age. There's there's probably a statue or a drawing or a carving of him in every corridor of the palace. Daniel says, that king, your father, the, the Most High God put him up, established him, and the Most High God laid him low and humbled him until he was reminded that the Most High God sets is king over all and sets in command who he will. And he tells the story, the story of him being humbled, giving the mind of a beast, eating grass, everything we talked about, right? He retells essentially the story of Daniel chapter 4. He sort of gives a quick summary of it. Which, by the way, is not an obscure story. It's not as though only the Jews, because they have the Bible, knew that Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind and ate grass. If you recall actually, the entire chapter of Daniel 4 is a letter, is an edict from the king that we've simply in, that was simply included in the book of Daniel. And it was an edict sent to every nation, tribe and tongue across the entire world. In other words, when Nebuchadnezzar had gone through all of this and humbled himself, he published as part of the chronicled history of Babylon, the story of having, him having been laid low by the mighty God of the Hebrew people. He said that. And Daniel says, and you knew it, Belshazzar. You knew it. Verse 22. Verse 22 is sort of the, the, the dagger in this, in this message. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. You knew it all. You thoughtlessly dishonored the God in whose hand is your very breath. Now, I just want to point out again, <clears throat> we are not yet even to the signs on the wall, right? We don't, we don't know the words on the wall yet, but I don't think anyone in here is that confused about how it's going to go for Belshazzar, right? Right? We know that those words, whatever they are, they're four-letter words, Like, this is not Belshazzar's day. And we know that. We know that not because Daniel said a word about the word on the wall, but because Daniel has said a word about the life of Belshazzar. I want to say that because it's really important for us to appreciate our lives will judge us. Your life will judge you. At the final day when God calls us all, he is going to retell your life. I mean, the words on the wall are the sentence, but we know the verdict. Belshazzar is guilty here. The Lord is going to give sentence to you, but our lives tell the story. And everything, right, at the end of the day, every one of us, every single person on the face of the earth... Everything comes down to the question, how was your life oriented around the Lord? That's it. Everything is about how was your life oriented around the Lord? And this is just a really important chance to ask this question. What is your life exalting? Your life is exalting something. What is it lifting up? What is it promoting? What is it bent around? How, how do you see is your life humbled before the Lord? Because we can act as though, you know, I wonder what's gonna happen at judgment. I'm telling you what's gonna happen at judgment. Your story is gonna be told. The sentence is really not that mysterious, is it? We know we know what's gonna happen to Belshazzar. I mean the words are mysterious, but we know where it's going. Is your life oriented around the Lord? Here's what Daniel says, verse 24. Then, from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, tekel and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. That very night. I find it striking, right? So we could say there's a lot of interesting things we could say about the words. So if you're curious, those are... I feel like those that sit in the land of Bible study, I mean, they're, they're, there's a curious, interesting eloquence to the words that are selected and how they relate. But all of that aside, what really we should feel is the, how the moment he says, like, your days have been measured, numbered, and cut short, the moment he says it, everything comes to an abrupt halt. I mean... There's such an abrupt nature in this story that very night Belshazzar is killed and the kingdom is lost. This was a kingdom that built one, maybe two wonders of the world. This is a kingdom that crossed time zones in a land before roads were really built. In a night it falls. He says you have been measured. It's like the judgment has already been given. You have been measured. I mean, as who knows? As Daniel is speaking, the Persians might be inside the walls of the city. I just think what's what's most valuable in the story is to feel the abrupt end, the immediacy, the done-ness. There's no debate, there's no conversation, it's done. There's no chance for Belshazzar to say he's sorry. It's done. There's no chance to sort of try to adjust or have a defense or bring your case. We need to appreciate when we are sitting before, at, at judgment day, when we're before the Lord. How can you not think of judgment day with this story? When you're before the Lord, you do not have a speaking part. We don't get a speaking part. Your story of your life is read before the Lord and the verdict is given. That's the picture here. It's an excellent image of judgment. And it would be wrong, it would be wrong to pass a story like this and talk about the gospel as though the gospel does not involve judgment. The world ends like this. Here's a question that comes to my mind. I kind of want to head it off at the pass because it's one of these drive-home thoughts. If anyone happens to kind of carry the message in them for a little while is, God, here's the question, God gave Nebuchadnezzar, it seems, that he gave him all these chances to humble himself and repent. There's four chapters of kind of Nebuchadnezzar getting warmed up to the idea of Yahweh, right? There's this steady, patient, merciful treatment of Nebuchadnezzar. You get to Belshazzar, and what do you get? You get nada, nothing. Belshazzar, you're done. Your days have been numbered. The enemy is at the gates. And you have less than 24 hours to live. This very night. And when we see that, we could make a case. You know, I don't know, I don't know why. I don't know why God seems to be patient with Nebuchadnezzar and not Belshazzar. But this is, this is the problem, right? It's moments like this where in somewhere in our spirit, we start to play the fairness game with the subject of mercy. Well, why did Nebuchadnezzar get all that mercy and Belshazzar didn't get mercy? Was well, he going to do that for Nebuchadnezzar? You know, the moment mercy is handed out, we go, well, I didn't get as much mercy as him, even though the definition of mercy is unfairness. right? We, Nebuchadnezzar got something he didn't deserve. I didn't get as much of what he didn't deserve. I didn't get as much. It's not fair. We, we could end up in this place where why doesn't God seem to treat Belshazzar the way he treats Nebuchadnezzar? and I don't know why, I don't know why, but I will say this, didn't Belshazzar have Daniel the whole time? For 17 years, Daniel's on the shelf collecting dust with Belshazzar. Didn't Belshazzar have the queen who knew Daniel? Didn't Belshazzar have the edict written by Nebuchadnezzar that was addressed to all the people of mankind so that every nation, tribe, and people would know? Didn't he have some document describing the way that God was? To the greatest king of the known history at the time, didn't Belshazzar have all of that? We sometimes allow our minds to go to places, what about that person who doesn't know that? And I would just want to say, well, what do you know? What do you know about God? It seems, it seems to me here that Belshazzar's access to the true knowledge of God, his ready access to the true knowledge of God and his refusal to take it seriously is his judgment. which is should strike great fear into a high-access culture. Once again, everything comes down to how your life is oriented around God. Everything does. The Scriptures are full of awareness of this, this idea of, you know, there's a parable. Jesus gives a parable. I barely have time to say this, but I'm going to say it. It's a parable, right? He he. He says there's this man named, uh, rich man and there's this beggar named Lazarus by the, by the gate, this poor beggar, and this beggar dies and he goes into the, the bosom of Abraham, it says. He's received by the Lord and this rich man dies and he goes down into hell and he's burning in hell and he one day cries up to Lazarus, hey Lazarus, can you like give me a glass of water is pretty much what he asked for. Can you Can you just dip your finger in some water and give it to me because it's so difficult and Lazarus says, I'm sorry I can't do that. Because between me and you is this great chasm that I cannot cross. And the rich man in hell says, well, can you go tell my sons, warn my sons what's going to happen? Okay, I just, before I finish the parable, I'm going to say this is a parable that came out of the mouth of Jesus our Lord. Okay? And he says, no. Your sons have the prophets. Your sons have the scripture. Your sons have everything they need. Do you see that? Access should become knowledge. Okay, man, I I have good news here. Well, one, this is good news. The fact that we know how it's going to work is good news, right? But there is good news, Uh, ironically, and this should even make us think of this story more and more and more like Judgment Day Ironically, you know what happens. So Cyrus is going to come in. He's called Darius here, but it's Cyrus, the king. He comes in. He takes over Babylon pretty much without a fight. And uh, the king of Babylon is killed. The Persians come into power. And do you know what else happens? Within this very same year, the king of Persia is going to say to the Hebrew people, you should go home and build your temple. The exile ends this very year. There's this hope here. There's this, we should see judgment day in this. There's this abrupt judgment of those who do not orient themselves around the Lord and there is this this repatriation to the promised land of those who worship God. It's like judgment day. I'm gonna close with a thought It's from the book of Revelation. It's the very end of the Bible. It's one of the last chapters of the entire Bible. It's Revelation chapter 18, and it's describing the very end of things. Essentially, it's describing Judgment Day. And you know how it's described in Revelation 18? It's a dirge. It's a song of lament written for a city called Babylon. In fact, the title of Revelation 18 in my Bible is The Fall of Babylon. And it's written this way. Babylon, O Babylon why you are drinking wine and frolicking and you've indulged yourself in immorality and you're sitting there and you're worshiping everything in the world but God, look how quickly your life is taken from you. In fact, this is just a quote from it. Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. What do you th- I feel like Daniel 5 is being retold. Daniel 5 is, is, I mean, it's a story. It happened in history, but it's a judgment day. It's a day to see that when the day comes, your life, your story will be told, and judgment will come. Everything comes down to how your life is oriented around God. Everything. We know an awful lot about that. The Bible is very clear. And so as I close, I'm just going to remind us where our hope comes from. Right? Our hope, just like the Psalm, clap your hands, all ye people. Shout with joy to the You know, I mean, we have this God who saves. We have the story, right? And we don't want to say, I've heard that. I want us to, to say, we know that. We know that. We know God. We know God sent his son for us to save us. This is, this is the good news, is that despite, despite our life of sin, right, Christ died for us. And the way that we show it is we orient our life around him. What is your life exalting? Let's pray, Lord. It's my hope, Lord, that your word uh, convicts with invitation. How does one give a stern warning and a welcome? Lord, that's what you've done for us. You've warned us out of love, not just once or twice. It feels like in your word, you've warned us hundreds of times of how it, our lives, how it will all end. How our lives will be stretched out and measured. And so Lord, we thank you this morning for this warning. And we're grateful that you haven't sugar-coated it that you describe it to us in the way it will be with clarity, Lord. All truth is good news, Lord, and so we thank you for that. And we thank you above that, Lord, for the message of mercy that comes through Christ. The blood of forgiveness that has been offered on our behalf. Lord, the work of Jesus should just make us more and more grateful. We recognize, Lord, though, to, to pass, to pass on Christ. To keep it at distance, to have it in ready access, but not to make it personal, Lord. How much more, how much more does that tell a story at the end, Lord? Father, it's our prayer that we have your whole, the compass of your whole revelation in our heart and that our lives would exalt you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.